What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising, so after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Our podcast today is brought to you in part by the 8 Sleep Ultimate Sleep Machine. It's called The Pod. Check it out at 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. The Amazon is burning. The headline, this is literally a CNN headline. The Amazon is burning because the world eats too much meat. Too much meat? Yeah, it turns out that this is why the vast majority of the deforestation that's been happening in the Amazon for the last 50 years has been going on. And now Bolsonaro is speeding this process up. Keep in mind, the Amazon rainforest produces 20% of the planet's oxygen. Without oxygen, we don't do real well, right, as human beings. I mean, we can take a small reduction in oxygen levels, but not a whole bunch. Well, here's what CNN says. So for those wondering how they could help save the rainforest, known as the planet's lungs, for producing about 20% of the world's oxygen, the answer may be simple. Eat less meat. Now, the finance minister of Finland actually called for this. Finland. He's asking the European Union to, quote, urgently review the possibility of banning Brazilian beef imports. Turns out that Brazil is the largest in the world, right? We've got a lot of cattle in the United States. I mean, there's more cows than there are people in the United States. And yet, Brazil is the largest exporter of beef in the world. In fact, they provide 20% of the entire planet's beef exports. This one country, Brazil. Burning down the Amazon, what they do is they burn down the trees, burn out the forest, allow grass to regrow, and then they graze cattle on it. And this is premium beef because it's, quote, grass-fed. You can get a lot higher price for grass-fed beef, particularly in Japan, interestingly enough. By the way, the principal export, 44% of Brazil's exports are going to China and Hong Kong, which you know kind of adds to the complexity of the issue. So we start out with this, okay, you know, Finland and CNN and the UN, this most recent thing that came out of the IPCC, are all saying, are all pointing at beef 
meat production in general, beef in particular, as being a principal cause or a principal source of greenhouse gases, both through deforestation and the intensive agricultural methods that produce enormous amounts of methane. Meanwhile, over in the New York Times, and this ties into the beef, article by Darish Musarafan and Dan Glickman, our food is killing too many of us. They say more than 100 million adults, almost half the entire adult population, have prediabetes or diabetes. Cardiovascular disease afflicts about 122 million people, causes 840,000 deaths every year. So this is, you know, heart and blood vessel disease is killing 2,300 Americans a day. Three in four of us are overweight or obese. And they identified just 10 dietary factors that are estimated to cause over a thousand deaths a day from heart disease, stroke, and diabetes alone. And at the top of this list, consuming meat. Cardiovascular disease costs us $351 billion a year in healthcare spending and lost productivity. Diabetes costs us $327 billion a year. The total cost of the obesity epidemic in the United States is estimated at $1.7 trillion a year. That's almost 10% of our entire GDP is going to deal with both the healthcare costs and the lost productivity costs associated with the obesity epidemic in the United States. But another issue that I think is really extraordinary is, you know, most conversations about global warming end with the concern about possible extinction of the human race, right? Obviously, you know, people are concerned about extinction of butterflies and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's the human race that really gets us freaked out. But it's not like we're just going to go along and go along and go along and debate who's going to be president and all that kind of stuff. And then suddenly, boom, the human race goes extinct. Instead, what's going to happen, and we've already seen this happen in Syria and Libya and arguably Tunisia. What's going to happen is that civilization will collapse as a consequence of global climate change. Famines will occur. Floods will occur. Crops will be destroyed. You're seeing this in Guatemala right now. They're in the fifth year of a severe drought. And it's producing mass poverty. It's wiping out small subsistence farmers and driving people off their farms. It is fueling an epidemic of domestic violence, which happens when men can no longer produce income for their families and they get all frustrated and you know, take it out as violence on women. And that's not a justification. It's a simple fact tragically and one of the reasons why economies and violence are so linked and have been over time. But that's what we're going to see. We're not going to see the death of the human race all of a sudden. We're going to see the collapse of civilization, literally what we call civilization. And I would argue that we're even seeing a little bit of that right now in the United States, the collapse of the American civilization, the American ideal in Trumpism. And the question is, you know, can we recover that? But we're just starting to get hit by climate change with massive fires in the West, massive flooding in the Midwest, the hurricanes in Puerto Rico and hitting the South. But when we look at the 50,000 year arc of human history, and, you know, we have a pretty good idea the last 7,000 years when things were written down, but we also have oral histories that go back 20, 30,000 years. And we can also look at the archaeological records and the anthropological records of like the first peoples to North America, for example, or the first peoples to New Zealand or Australia or, you know, the other islands where Melanesian explorers, by and large, you know, found their way through. What we find is that people typically eat everything that's edible. 
when they first arrive at a new continent, and then wipe out their own food supply. And then out of that, they become warlike and their civilization collapses. And then out of that, more often than not, they reboot into the kind of egalitarian society that we saw with Native Americans in the United States. And the Captain Cook found in British New Caledonia. He said, you know, this is a paradise. These people are the happiest people on earth. So is it possible that an extinction event could save the humans and the planet by waking us up or by crashing our civilization and out of that will come a new and rebirth civilization? We're also, I'm gonna be continuing that conversation with David Cork, so stick around. That's gonna get real fascinating. But, you know, what do you think? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Tom Hartman Program, the true people's media. Sandra in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Sandra, what do you think? I think the worst things are the deregulation of protecting our earth, mm-hmm. our water, our climate. If we don't have an earth to live on, nothing else matters. Yeah. Yeah, so Trump's EPA and his Interior Department, which are both run now by fossil fuel lobbyists, rolling back, for example, Obama's tailpipe emissions law, which, by the way, the auto companies were all in favor of. They're very upset now. And all the other things that he's done to destroy our environment. Okay, I'm with you. Thank you. J-U-S-Y, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Hillsburg, California? Hi. Oh, Judy. I'm sorry, it's a D. Hey, Judy. Right. You know, Tom, what's been on my mind and in my heart is I'm a follower of Albert Schweitzer. I guess my philosophy is reverence for life. And every time there's any report about the Amazon, the floods, Katrina, going all the way back, there is never any mention of the animals that are lost. And I think, isn't this important? I mean, there are so many of us that love animals I mean, what I'm bouncing off of was, I mean, I've been watching Amy Goodman for years, but I've gotten that she doesn't feel animals. She gave a total report about the Amazon, not one thing about the animals lost. And I know I'm talking to the right person. I know you're a vegan, and I know that you care. So, I mean... It is a crisis. I'm not going to, you know, criticize Amy. She does great reporting. But just the Amazon itself is home to three million unique species. And so we're not just killing furry friendly things with these forest fires. We are killing off the biological diversity that is the base of the pyramid of all life on this planet. And, you know, it's, it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. Judy, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Tom Hartman here with you, and what do we do with all this? I was talking about the possibility that an extinction event could actually save humans and the planet. When we look at the last 50,000 years of human history, we see over and over and over again, particularly in island nations like New Zealand or New Caledonia, that when people, or even Australia, when people first showed up, they basically wiped out the local ecology, and then they recover from that and, and create more egalitarian societies. And, you know, a question is, 
how are we going to do this? How are we going to make our way through this? In the studio with us is one of the most extraordinary thinkers of our time, absolutely brilliant man, Dr. David Corton. He's the co-chair of the New Economy Working Group, the founder and president of the Living Economies Forum, formerly the People-Centered Development Forum, a member of the Club of Rome, founding board member emeritus of the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, the author of numerous books, Agenda for a New Economy, From Phantom Wealth to Real Wealth, The Great Turning, From Empire to Earth Community, his most famous international bestseller, When Corporations Rule the World, which is now out in third edition, and to Change the Story, Change the Future, A Living Economy for the Living Earth. D. Corton is his Twitter handle, and his website is davidcorton, K-O-R-T-E-N dot org. David, welcome. Well, thank you, Tom. It's so nice to have you here in the studio with us. Well, it's wonderful to be with one of my, well, actually, my favorite commentator. Well, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> of course, so, a long-time friend. Absolutely. So the question, could an extinction event save the human race? So you talk about how we are creatures of our stories, and we have a particular economic story that we've been telling ourselves. In fact, we even now teach it in our colleges, that as an economist, you're saying is nuts. Absolutely nuts. I mean, one of the hopes for our time, I mean, I don't think that an extinction event, I mean, if we go extinct, it's all over. But the realization that's sweeping all around the world, basically, that we are on a path to self-extinction, and yet we scarcely discuss the depth of the problem and its implications. But that, in a way, is our hope for the world, that recognizing that there are no winners on a dead earth. Now, this is a starting point toward addressing practically every problem that we face. I mean, you were just talking about racism, which is absolutely real. And we've, Fran and I have lived all over the world, and that's absolutely true. But we're now at a point where we need to recognize, be very explicit, that all people, regardless of race, gender, religion, whatever, have a common interest in the survival of the species. Now, that puts us into a mode of recognizing there's something really wrong with the cultural stories around which we organize and around the institutions through which we channel power and make decisions. So what is the principal story that is so dysfunctional in our society? Right? Yeah, I mean, very simply, the one that we teach in our schools and constantly repeat on the media, that the key to wealth and prosperity for all is growing GDP, essentially growing consumption. And it's based on an underlying assumption that money is wealth, that making money creates wealth, that there are no limits to Earth's capacity to support human consumption. And if we just all focus on growing GDP, we can all be fabulously wealthy and consumers. Mm. Now, it doesn't take very careful observation to recognize that that is absolutely false, that where our growth in GDP over decades has been leading us is to destroying our capacity to support life, all essentially to make money for billionaires, to grow their financial accounts, which then increases their political and economic power and ability to further structure the institutions and the political dynamics of society to grow their wealth. So what's the alternative story? The alternative story is that we, I mean, <laughs> we are living beings born of and nurtured by a living earth, which the thing that's always so phenomenal about this is the truth is so obvious. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all know that. We're living beings born of and nurtured by a well, living actually, earth. Well, <laughs> actually, I think, that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people, particularly younger people, who literally think food comes from the supermarket. There's an intellectual disconnect. I mean, they, yeah. they may intellectually know, the, yeah, you know, this yeah. pork actually was once a pig, but there's no there's no gut level connection there. They've never been on a farm. They've never grown their own exactly. food. They've they've never had to interact with an ecosystem in a way that even a garden yeah. that would inform them about how yeah. these things work. And so, you know, this kind of conversation just literally goes right over their heads. Uh that would be true for some young people. I mean, yeah. my sense is that more and more young people are also waking up to the reality that they basically have no future if we continue on the current path. Right. I think what you raise creates a very interesting, well, it suggests the ability in our minds to separate separate ideas. So mm -hmm. at one level, I think it's quite general recognition that we're on a path to self-extinction. I mean, it's one reason I think why that child and teen suicides are, are at a high point. You know, a sense of no, no possibility for a decent future. At the other hand, what you're saying is totally true. I mean, I mean this is so fascinating. There are so many aspects of our society cut us off from relationships with nature and also cut us off from relationships with each other. And yet living systems, living communities absolutely depend for their health, well-being, their ability to create and maintain the conditions essential to their own existence depend on our relationships and our recognition that we absolutely depend on each other and we and, depend and yet, on nature. And yet what we've put together is an organization around the corporation. Right? Yeah. And not just here in the United States. I mean, this is literally all around the world. Or in the case of like China, you know, government controlled corporations, basically. Yes. But it's basically capitalism. You know, capitalism has kind of become our new god. It's become mm -hmm. the, the figurehead of our communities. It has infiltrated our politics to the point yeah. that the Republican Party literally will not even consider gun control legislation or do anything about global warming. Two things that are literally killing us and people all over the world as we speak. So how do we organize around living communities? How do we begin to do that? And how do we break our connection, our stories, and our legal connections to corporations? Well, it actually begins with a story. Okay. And this calls us to recognize that one of the things that makes us distinctive as humans is the extent to which we live the stories that are in our minds. That we essentially create our reality, and we can create realities in our mind. One, we can divide them between you know two different realities that are totally in conflict and flip back and forth. And um, if you don't believe this, by the way, just talk to somebody who watches Fox News all the time. Yeah. So the starting point is actually to come together around the common story, you know, which starts with we are living beings born of and nurtured by a living earth. So um, if earth is not healthy, we're not only not healthy, we're, we're at risk, certainly. Yeah. At risk. And once we get clear on that, you recognize that life exists only in communities that self-organize to create and maintain the conditions essential to their own existence. You also recognize that everything beyond the things that were here originally in terms of the basic material, minerals, and so forth, are all products of the labor of life, of nature, and of humans. 
So labor is actually the foundation of all real wealth. And yet we create a society that organizes around the idea that power should reside with the people who own the assets, own the products of labor, rather right. so than recognizing... What, whether it's the Walton family or Jeff Bezos or, or Warren Buffett or whoever. Exactly. The billionaire class basically have all the power and all the wealth or much of yeah. it. <laughs> you know, 28 people have more wealth than the bottom, what, 70% And it 70 keeps, it keeps growing. Well. So we yeah. have fewer and fewer people owning what so is actually a that? shrinking supply. How do, how do we flip that? Professor Wolf comes on this program every week and he talks about replacing essentially the capitalist system with worker co-ops. Yeah, yeah, worker, worker ownership is absolutely, the has to be a foundation. Yeah. Now, there's a whole set of things that we need to change that are, you know, require deep change. Now, part of what's important to recognize here that this is not just about saving ourselves, that if we are ready to make these deep changes, it means we actually have the opportunity to create the world that most humans have dreamed of for a very long time, a world of peace, of beauty, of generosity, of creativity. And by the way, people hear this and say, oh, come on, this is a liberal <laughs> fantasy. Humans have actually done this over and over and over again. Yeah, and I know you've studied that in great depth. Yeah, and you have too. I mean, this is these are the egalitarian societies that we celebrate as Native American societies, but yeah. this is the case with Aboriginal societies all over the world, depending on where they are in that developmental cycle. And we've had these isolated situations in the past, we have never before had the communications capabilities we have now, which allows us to recognize these deep truths as a species and to share our knowledge across all of the borders that have separated us in the past to arrive at an image of what we actually want and to have the discussion about what we need to do to get there which is exactly to organize around communities rather than corporations, to set our indicators against which we manage the economy by indicators of our well-being. You know, our water is clean, our air is clean, the soils are fertile and living. Right. I'd like to get into that in a little more detail. Can you stick around for a few minutes, David? I surely can. Great. We're talking with David Corton, his most famous book, of course, When Corporations Rule the World, his most recent Change the Story, Change the Future, A Living Economy for a Living Earth. He has a new paper on these topics. You can read it over at davidcorton.org, K-O-R-T-E-N, and you can tweet him at dcorton. We'll be right back with David Corton. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And my question for you, what do you think are some of the best solutions? Where are these deep-seated problems residing? So even sometimes when I'm doing, you know, visits in, in uh, other towns or book signings and things, people will come up and say, hey, I got an next chair and I love it. Or I'm thinking about getting an extra. Is it really as good as you say? And yes, it actually is. And they now have a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. So there's no risk. You can try it yourself. Once you feel the X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, their DVL, you'll understand why I love my X-Chair so much. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for you, the X-Basic or the X-1 through the X-4. 
The X-Chair can fit your body and your budget. It's also on sale now for 100 bucks off. Just go to X-Chair Tom, T-H-O-M, now. That's X-Chair, T-H-O-M, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. Go to XChairTom.com now and use the code XWheels, and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. XChairTom.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. XChairTom.com. We were talking about essentially creating an egalitarian world. And, you know, I was saying this is not impossible. Humans have done it before. You want to riff on that a little bit? Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it starts, of course, with recognizing that we have absolutely no future if we stick with the economic system and the arrangements of power that we currently have that put the power in the hands of corporations and, and essentially in the hands of psychopaths. Individuals who have set aside all uh, human and natural interests to maximize the growth of their personal financial assets, all in line with this perverse economic theory that we call neoliberalism, that would have us believe that money is wealth and growing money creates wealth and is good for everyone. Right. Now... The fundamental thing is let us get really clear what it is that we really want. We want a society in which everyone has whatever they need in terms of employment. Now, this also recognizes that labor is essential to life. So it's not that we're going to do away with the need to labor, the need for jobs or the need for work but that we need to organize around work that is productive and we need to channel the rewards to people who are concerned, serving the community, helping one another. So how do we do that at the level of policy? The starting point is the conversation. I mean, first of all, we've got to really openly recognize that we are on a path to common self-extinction and there are no winners on a dead earth. That you know, that's just the absolute foundation. Now, part of our problem is that that is, that is a reality that is too frightening even to discuss. Mm-hmm. So we tend to shy away from it. Now, I think the way around that is recognizing that it's, you know, it's, it's not just the threat, but it is a possibility that if we embrace the reality of the threat, that recognizes that the current institutions are not working, the current culture doesn't work, that we have to give that up. And that opens the way to opportunities for extraordinary creativity. Now, whether we can actually pull this off is another question. You know, if you ask me, what is my rational prediction of what's going to happen? You know, I think we're already too late. But I also recognize that if we make that our assumption, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. You're talking with regard to the environment? With regard to the environment, exactly. That, you know, we're going to continue to pollute the air to destroy our water supplies, etc. we'll kill ourselves off. Kill ourselves off, yeah. Self-extinction. So, but once we embrace that, which, uh, you know, I find when I go around and speak to people and I ask how many people are aware that we're on a path to self-extinction, at least everybody in the rooms I speak to raises their hand. I mean, this is yeah. not uh, this is not a secret. Yeah. 
We're sitting here talking with David Corton, a guest in our studio today. His most famous book, When Corporations Rule the World, most recently, Change the Story, Change the Future. David, we were talking about how if we don't wake up from this dysfunctional story that the world is unlimited, we can pollute forever, and capital is the beginning and end of all things, basically, that we're doomed, that the human race itself is screwed. I mean, civilization in the, in the short term. And how one of the ways to change this is, is to view everything as basically a living system, including our economy. And you used to teach economics at Harvard, as I recall. Well, I taught business. Yeah, business. business okay. you know, it's quite different, actually. Okay, but, you know, close enough. <laughs> Particularly back then. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, you know, changing our understanding yeah. of our business systems, increasing the primacy of labor and, and going to things like, you know, worker-owned co-ops. How do we bring this into the political sphere? I mean, this is a conversation that seems to be, even on the Democratic side right now, you've got Jay Inslee out there saying climate change, climate change, climate change, and nobody else is integrating that into all these other issues. Well, I think one of the things we need to realize is that the solution is not going to come from within the political system and from among the political candidates. There's no doubt in my mind that we need to achieve really deep change in this election. But we also have to recognize that we have a tendency to say, well, if we just elect the right person president, that will take care of it. Yeah, the salvationist thinking. Somebody's going to save us. We just exactly. need a political equivalent of Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And the very nature of the future that we need to achieve is one of deep engagement um, in the life of community self-organizing communities of people that are living together and uh, concerned about the health of their soils and the health of their community and is everybody taken care of and how but there's do we there, but there's two pieces and we have a little less than a minute yeah there's two pieces to this one is the awakening and the second is the policy making yes so let's assume a certain level of awakening what's the first piece of legislation that you would want to pass to, to bring about this change i think the first one would be to change our indicators uh, do away with GDP and start looking at what? At indicators of well-being and happiness. Now, happiness is not ha-ha or, uh, you know, joy-joy, yeah. but going back to the, to the founding of the yeah. um, happiness is one of the one of our goals. It's a great, great You know, I, I, I grew up in Michigan, and there were two papers, the Detroit Free Press, the Detroit News. One was the labor paper, and the other was the business paper. The labor paper, every day on its labor section, mm -hmm. had the average wage in Michigan. Perfect. Literally every day, you could see yeah. what the average wage in Michigan was. That was their indicator. David, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you. Brilliant. Great talking with you. David Corton, davidcorton.org is the website. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I've got an important message for all my listeners. Economists will tell you that rising gold prices are an indicator of a failing currency. Well, gold is already up over 10% just since January and up over 33% in the last three years. What is all this really telling us? Well, the last crash was just a warning. It's only been papered over with trillions of dollars in new debt, and statistically, the next crash is already overdue. This reality has pushed the demand for precious metals to price levels not seen in nearly six years. The time to buy gold is now, before the crash and before the next price increase. The big questions everyone asks are, who can I trust and what types of gold do I buy? Call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 gold The proper gold and silver strategy will help secure all your major assets, including your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide 
and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Boy, what a day. That fascinating conversation is so cool to have somebody like David Corton in the studio. Just one of the most brilliant thinkers of our time and really on topic with this. Michael in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? I hope to talk to him about uh, climate crisis. He mentioned, and I think he discussed briefly, the idea of planting trees all over the world. But I mentioned that. Trees, okay, but that was probably not realistic. That's like what he said. Talked, yeah often about a move to amend and the elimination of corporate constitutional rights and money as speech. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that seems to be the systemic change that would allow actual uh, reasonable reg regulations and laws to be passed that would allow uh, us to reduce emissions. And I wanted to ask if in all the discussions you've had over the years about how we can address the climate crisis, have you heard of any systemic change other than this amendment that would allow things to actually change? I think you're absolutely right, Michael. The original sin here in politics is Buckley versus Vallejo, the 1976 decision of the Supreme Court uh, right. after Lewis Powell was put on the court that said that basically when a corporation or a billionaire throws money into, in, into a political campaign, throws money behind a ballot initiative, throws money behind a politician, buys a politician, essentially owns a politician or even an entire political party, that that is constitutionally protected First Amendment free speech, not the spending of money, which is completely counterintuitive and completely BS. And then they doubled down on it, of course, in 2010, October 2010, with the uh, Citizens United decision. And sure. this not only is allowing big fossil fuel interests to control our debate and dialogue and discussion and legislation around climate change. It's also allowing the big banks to control basically our discussion about whether big banks should be broken up and what new regulations they're trying to put on credit unions and, and locally owned banks to make them, community banks, to make them less competitive against uh, the big banks. It's the thing that is allowing the big insurance companies to, to own our healthcare dialogue and debate, allowing big pharma to own our pharmaceutical landscape. I mean, pick an industry, right? It's, it's allowing right. four airlines to monopolize prices, jam us into smaller and smaller seats and with crummier, crummier service and, and make flying a miserable experience. It's while they're you know laughing all the way to the bank. I mean, just literally pick an industry. Every single one of these industries has become more toxic to us with the help of government by virtue of their ability to spend money and thus influence politics because of the Buckley decision and the Citizens United decision. This is well, not how politics were prior to 1980, basically, which is when the Buckley decision really started to sink in and the Republicans figured out, hey, you know, our rich buddies can own any politician they want. Yeah, but Tom, you, I know you know that aside from the money, just having constitutional rights yes. allows a corporation to ensure winning just about any court case they take up because they can find, even if it's twisted, an amendment that applies to them for what they want to gain. And right now, you know, we're all scared about this climate crisis and the fact that it seems to be existential. And yet, only one of our presidential candidates so far has come out and said what we have to do is get rid of corporate constitutional rights and money of speech, and that was Mayor Pete. Governor Inslee is talking about reducing climate change, but no one yet that I've heard has come out 
in public, aside from Jayapal. Well, Bernie has made that point on this program probably a hundred times over the last, over the 11 years that he was on the show. About money or constitutional rights? Both. No money all the time. Both. Bernie has repeatedly uh, spoken out against the, you know, the the so-called 1886 Santa Clara decision. Right, right. Um, and, so, and, so why and don't he Buckley. and others then actually use and this as part of their campaign? I think they may well be, and and I believe that Elizabeth Warren is as well. That's It is, though, I, I agree with you, Michael, I think this is a cornerstone issue, and, and uh, you know, we should be viewing it as somewhat of a litmus test, and I would love to know the position of every single one of the Democratic candidates on it. And with that, Michael, I gotta, I gotta move along and let somebody else in here to talk, but Thank you for the call. It's 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 an important topic. It really, really is. Jules in Eugene, Oregon. Thanks for listening. What's um, up? I've listened to your show for years and am a donor for years. Well, thank you. I, you mean to Free Speech well, TV? Yes. Yeah, that's great. And thank you. Uh, I want to thank you. And the topic that I wanted to bring up is that with the refugee crisis in the three countries where their economy is messed up because of the environment would it be cheaper to just help those countries rebuild than deal with the refugee problem and is there anybody talking about that in the legislature yeah i think it would be cheaper and even if it was slightly more expensive it's a permanent long-term fix as opposed to you know, these uh, short-term deal with the crisis, it's dealing with the problem rather than the effects of the problem. And therefore, we should be doing it. And these countries that have largely agricultural-based economies, they're going to have to, you know, figure out. Now, now, the energy, and Jules, thank you for the call. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was walking home from the studio. Energy is at the core of everything, right? I mean, literally, the production of food comes about in the efficiency of the production of food is a function of energy. We used to plant crops by hand. Then we used animals. We used oxen, you know, to plow our fields. And then we replaced oxen uh, with internal combustion engines. You know, our horses were replaced by internal combustion engines. So you could have the power of 100 horses inside a tractor instead of, ha- you know, having to pull 100 horses. And so we became much more productive, right, agriculturally. Now, if you look at these Central American countries, all the sunshine that they get, and also they're right between two oceans, so there's, you know, constant wind. If they were to generate massive amounts of electricity using solar and wind power in Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, you know, in these, in these Central American countries, if they were to generate massive amounts of electricity, they could use that electricity to power things like giant greenhouses, power the water systems for irrigation, power the uh, heat and air conditioning regulation of those greenhouses so that they could produce enormous amounts of food like they're producing right now, only much more efficiently as increasingly large parts of their land become basically, because of drought and because of flooding, become basically so screwed up that they won't support agriculture. So it's a way that they could, you know, make it through, that they could survive. But you know, nobody's even talking about this. I think it just seems to me like a good idea. I want to bring on uh, Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, who is the Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization with the National Wildlife Federation. NWF.org is their website. Dr. Ali, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right. 
Yes, you are. Okay, great. In Christchurch, New Zealand and in El Paso, two very, very high-profile shooters, the Christchurch shooter openly declared himself an eco-fascist and ranting about immigrant birth rates. Uh, the El Paso shooter uh, didn't use the word eco-fascist, but in his manifesto or rant or whatever, he complained about water pollution and plastic waste and said that we're creating a massive burden for future generations. What is going on here? Eco-fascism? Really? Actually, it's not a new thing. It's been around for a little while now. Environmental justice organizations, leaders have been talking about white nationalism, white supremacy, trying to separate communities of color to get them to be against each other. And then also anti-immigration movements have been around, as we know, for quite some time. Then you begin to sort of couple that with, you know, the real serious challenges that exist in relationship to pollution, into environmental degradation, into climate change. They have been actually trying to co-opt the language of inclusiveness and working together to address these issues and began to overlay it. So is this an attempt by white supremacists, white nationalists, and neo-Nazis to reach out to young people who are already predisposed to be concerned about the quality and nature of the world that they're inheriting, to reach out to them via their concern about ecology and the future, and then sell them on white nationalism and white supremacy? Most definitely it is. It is. Again, it's an op- it is it's a marketing a, campaign, essentially. <laughs> there is a marketing campaign, a re-education campaign. It is a trying to reach those who feel disconnected and to bring them into a, a world of hate and of violence. So what can we do about this? How do we respond to this? Well, the best thing for us to do is to actually put real facts out there in front of folks about how we can address some of these problems that, that we are facing and that will come in the future. Instead of focusing on hate and separation and trying to shrink certain populations, what we should be focused on is how do we lower our carbon footprint? How do we address the plastic pollution problem that we have? How do we address the deforestation problem that we have? How do we address the transportation routes that are putting a lot of pollution also into our atmosphere? There are solutions. There are folks who have been working on those. There are communities of color, along with other organizations, who have been putting forward solutions. So we cannot allow folks to co-opt the narrative and to make it one of distrust and separation. Um, At this time, dealing with the climate crisis, we really have to come together. Yeah. Amen. Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali with the National Wildlife Federation, nwf.org. Brilliant, eloquently said, and assuming people can find more information at nwf.org? They can. They can. Okay, great. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, and thank you for the work that you've done all these years. Hey guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed with Blue Chew. That's like blue, like the color. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. So you know that they work. You can take it anytime, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work twice as fast as the pill. So Blue Chew is prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a discreet package. No in-person doctor visits, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. They're made in the USA and they ship direct and they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now we've got a special deal for you. Visit BlueChew, B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W, BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free 
When you use a special promo code TOM, THM, all you pay is five bucks for shipping. Again, that's blue, B-L-U-E, chew, bluechew.com. Promo code TOM to try it free. Blue Chew, Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. On the phone line with us right now is uh, Susan Jane Brown. Susan Jane is an attorney with the Western Environmental Law Center. That's uh, westernlaw.org is the website. Previously, she was the National Resource Defense Council lawyer for Congressman Peter DeFazio, the 4th District of Oregon, a great guy in Washington, D.C. Susan Jane, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Tom. You and Western Law are at the forefront of trying to fight the efforts of the Trump administration to basically gut our forests. And now this thing with the Tongass National Forest up in Alaska, where uh, my wife and I were just up there a few weeks ago, and it's just breathtakingly beautiful. I mean, wild uh, eagles and bears. and Well, it's, it's all wild. It's just amazing. And It's an amazing place. Yeah, it, I've been to Alaska a few times, but it, it was always Anchorage. But this time we actually went through all these places and it was just breathtaking. Let's start with the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. I understand that this is central to the Trump administration's efforts to gut these protections. Can you tell me about this? Sure. So the Trump administration, as I'm sure you know, has definitely taken aim at the environment for the past three years and now has finally turned its sights on the National Forest System and the Forest Service. Earlier this year, the Forest Service proposed to revise its National Environmental Policy Act regulations, or NEPA, and those regulations do a couple of things. First of all, NEPA is a look-before-you-leap law, so it requires federal agencies to take a hard look at the environmental consequences of its actions prior to moving forward with that particular action. And then it also allows for the public to have a voice in that decision-making. So what the Trump administration is doing with these proposed regulations is proposing to shift about 93% of its proposed decision-making to a very limited type of environmental review called a categorical exclusion. And in addition to doing that, it's also proposing to exempt categorical exclusions from public comment. So really this is an effort to shift environmental decision-making, environmental analysis under the radar and not allow the public a role in public lands management, which is extremely problematic from our point of view. To what extent is the Trump administration, is what they're proposing to do here, an actual violation of law or is it just a twisting of law? Are they ignoring law? Is a legislative remedy necessary? I mean, how does this play out? I think a little bit of all of the above is going on. The agency's proposed intention with these regulations is to increase efficiency when it makes decisions involving land management. And I think that we can all agree that we want a government that is efficient and that makes decisions in a prompt manner. So there's really nothing to complain about there. What's problematic with the Forest Service's approach is that it's attempting to solve the wrong problem here. There have been a number of studies, not only conducted by other government agencies, but also by academics and, in fact, the Forest Service itself, to look at why it takes the agency as long as it does to reach particular decisions, which can range anywhere from two to three years to much longer if the project is very complex and involves a lot of natural resource issues. And what that research has identified is that 
there are other problems that lead to these long decision times, things like a lack of congressional funding or a lack of training of agency employees in the NEPA process. Other things like turnover. So, for example, with the Forest Service, their agency culture is one in which if you want to move up in the agency, you have to move around to different offices. So maybe you're stationed in Oregon, and then you go to Alaska, and then you're in Utah, and then you're in Florida. And so that moving around really means that it's musical chairs. And when you don't have someone in a decision-making capacity for a period of time, it's not surprising that they can't get their program of work accomplished. So it's these sort of unsexy internal agency cultural problems that are really at the root cause of the delay in decision-making, not the fact that environmental analysis is required or that consulting with the public is required. It's really more about the agency and its internal culture than the National Environmental Policy Act. Now, so I've really this regulation is attempting to solve the wrong problem. Right. I have heard that the governor of Alaska met Trump's plane when he was returning from Asia recently, Air Force One, while they were stopping in Anchorage to refuel and got on the plane and had a conversation with Trump basically lobbying him for this because it's jobs in Alaska. And you can understand that, you know, from a purely political point of view. But that would suggest that this decision has been made based on politics rather than the law. Does NEPA have the ability to deal with that kind of pressure? Well, it's a good question. And what you were talking about there was Trump's request or demand, I guess, to Agriculture Secretary Purdue to grant Alaska an exemption to the roadless rule, which is a national rule that was actually enacted in the Clinton era. And Alaska has never liked that Clinton rule. It has always believed that Alaska is different. And Alaska is different, but it's not so different that we shouldn't also protect the roadless areas in Alaska as well. And so what Trump is now saying he's going to do is to mandate that Alaska receive an exemption to the roadless rule. And I think what we've learned so far from this administration is that the president likes to do a lot of things ad hoc that are patently illegal. And I would suggest that any edict to grant Alaska an exemption would be illegal, not only under the National Environmental Policy Act, but also the Administrative Procedure Act, which requires federal agencies to follow a very rigorous process when it makes a rulemaking decision. So Trump is clearly trying to do an end run around the law in order to deliver a gift to Alaska. Hmm. Remarkable. Olivia Glasscock, who is an attorney at Earth Justice, said, and I quote, the Trump administration is rushing to hand favors to big oil, gas, logging, and mining interests once again with the Forest Service's latest proposal to attack bedrock environmental law. To what extent is this all one thing? I mean, we've got these giant fossil fuel companies that have been funding climate change denial for years and years, ExxonMobil and others, the fossil fuel billionaires, the Koch brothers, funding not just climate change denialism, but also this whole libertarian movement that there literally should not be public lands in the United States, that everything should be privatized. To what extent is this all one fabric that needs to be taken on in a more systemic fashion Or are they coming after us in a systemic fashion and we're trying to deal with them piecemeal and that's part of the problem? Or is my analysis of the situation completely wrong? 
Well, I, I think you're right on both alternatives there, actually. Certainly, this administration has made no, no bones about its desire to have energy dominance here in this country, and that has led to a number of rollbacks of clean air and clean water regulations that were put in place to protect our public lands and communities. I look at this most recent round of rulemaking, both with the Forest Service's NEPA rule and also the Tongass, as just part and parcel of that. It is definitely an attempt to open public lands to private development and to cut the public out of the process. And we've seen that time and again from this administration. So I'm not entirely surprised. It's disturbing. But it does seem to be the way that this president conducts himself. And the courts have responded. And I think that that's the important thing to keep in mind here is that although it's been rocky, it is true that the system of checks and balances is working and that the federal court system has held the administration's feet to the fire and has said, no, you you can't just simply waive environmental laws or run roughshod over administrative procedures. You actually have to follow the law. And so as a lawyer, that's that's comforting to see, even though we do have to go to court very regularly in order to force, uh, enforce those rights. Are you concerned about all these right-wing judges that, in some cases, people have never even been in a courtroom, never tried a case, nothing, that Mitch McConnell is shoving through, yes. eroding um, that bulwark? For sure. I, I'm definitely concerned about what I'm seeing. I live here in Oregon. And we're within the jurisdiction of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which has always been uh, sort of the favored punching bag of the right. They believe that the court is very liberal and and issues all these liberal decisions, when in fact that's really not the case. Uh, It is the case that the Ninth Circuit has a very large jurisdiction. It covers a lot of the West, including most of our Western public lands. So there are a lot of decisions that come out of the Ninth Circuit that touch on public land issues that overturn federal agency decisions. And I think that the bottom line point there is that those decisions were illegal, not that the court is putting a thumb on the scale, but rather has evaluated what the law says and what the agency did and makes a ruling whether or not that action was legal. So the fact that the administration is attempting to pack the court system, including the Ninth Circuit, including trying to split the Ninth Circuit, in order to achieve more favorable pro-development outcomes, that's putting the thumb on the scale, not allowing the judiciary to be independent as it is intended to be. Remarkable stuff. Susan Jane Brown, the attorney for the Western Environmental Law Center, WELC, previously worked with Congressman Peter DeFazio as a National Resource Defense Counsel. Westernlaw.org is the website. Susan Jane, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you so much, Tom. Appreciate it. Great speaking. And Tom Hartman here with you. Trump wants to take $150 million away from FEMA to pay for incarcerating children in cages. He tried to take money away from flood protection. This is NBC News. Under the proposal, the officials said Trump could dip into the $2.4 billion allocated to projects in California, including flood protection and protection projects along the Yuba River Basin and the Folsom Dam, as well as $2.5 billion set aside for reconstruction projects in Puerto Rico. Right. On MSNBC, I was noticing on the uh, show that Stephanie Rule normally does, they had once again this guy from the Reason Foundation. He's a regular guest on. I think he's a good buddy of Stephanie's. I just want to make it very clear. The Reason Foundation is an associate member of the State Policy Network. 
The State Policy Network is associated with ALEC. It's all funded by the Koch Family Foundation. David Koch was a Reason Magazine trustee. These guys are part of this web of right-wing disinformation. And this guy was talking about how Trump's rollback or his proposed rollback of the methane rules that were put in, you know, you can't, if you're drilling for oil or gas, you can't allow too much methane to escape into the atmosphere. It's 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide as a, as a greenhouse gas. Trump is rolling this back. And this guy from Reason on MSNBC, for God's sake, is saying, well, this could actually be a good thing. Amazing. 500 million bees, a half a billion bees have died in Brazil just in the last three months. Why? Because Bolsonaro has said, oh, you can use those bee-killing pesticides now. This isn't even colony collapse disorder. The bees are just dropping dead in the fields now. Marie in Clear Lake Oaks, California. Hey, Marie, what's up? My sister called me from near, she lives near Kansas City, Missouri, mm -hmm. and she said she saw on the TV that there was an empty spot beside Merkel where Trump was supposed to be sitting, and so that means that he missed part of the G7 Session. Right, the Have climate session. Yeah, he chose not to go to the session on climate change. Didn't even show uh, up. And then he lied uh, about it. He said that he was uh, having a meeting with Modi and Merkel. I'm pretty sure that was it. And, hmm. you know, the Prime Minister of India and the Prime Minister of Germany. And hmm. it turns out that both Modi and Merkel were at the climate change meeting that Trump chose not to go to. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Just another one of his lies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he just he just does it with such easy facility. Yeah. Thanks, Marie. Thanks for the call. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And, and of course, he didn't go because he and the entire Republican Party are addicted to Coke, Coke money. You know, Charles Koch you know, running Koch Industries and, you know, and, and uh, all, all these uh, grassroots, in quotes, uh, groups that Koch, that the Koch brothers have funded. You know, one of them just passed away, but, uh, you know, now it's the Koch brother. And these groups have been basically keeping the Republican Party alive. Or actually, they turned the Republican Party into this bizarre libertarian zombie, and now they're funding that zombie. And it's, it's devouring the party, it's destroying the party, it's destroying the United States, it's destroying America as a country, and it has been, you know, for all the years that they've been doing this. And now it's risking the destruction of the entire planet through climate change. But, you know, Trump's addicted to Coke money, so he didn't go. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And time for Geeky Science. Indeed, there's our Geeky Science music. This is absolutely concerning. When you have antibiotics at low levels, or, you know, at high levels, it's even worse, but even at low levels in the environment, they cause bacteria to mutate in response to the presence of the antibiotics to resist the antibiotics, right? This produces what's called antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria. We now have, for example, strains of gonorrhea traveling around the world. They've popped up in the US in a few places. It's been a problem in Southeast Asia for some years that are resistant to pretty much everything. Antibiotic-wise, you get this disease and you will die, just like you would have before antibiotics. I mean, we're back before Louis Pasteur. It is of scientific consequence to find out what's the antibiotic level in the environment in the biosphere. And literally for the first time, which shocks me, it shocks me more than anything else, they actually did a study and looked at rivers in 72 countries on six continents 
And what they found was that in 65% of these sites, there were antibiotics. And in many cases, the antibiotics radically exceeded even what we call safe levels. In fact, the uh, article, this is from sciencedaily.com, is titled, Antibiotics Found in Some of the World's Rivers Exceeds Safe Levels, Global Study Finds by Catherine Paddock. Concentrations of antibiotics found in some of the world's rivers exceed safe levels by up to 300 times. The first ever global study has discovered. Metrodazole, I'm not sure how to pronounce these things, which is used to treat bacterial infections. At one site, Bangladesh was 300 times greater than the safe level. The River Thames in London, researchers discovered a maximum total antibiotic concentration of 233 nanograms per liter, 170 times higher in Bangladesh. The most prevalent antibiotic was trimethoprim, which was detected at 307 of the 711 sites tested and is typically used for urinary tract infections. Cipro was found at 51 places. This is not good. I mean, this is not good. And I am guessing that it may be in the third world a lot. You know, some of this is coming from people just routinely using antibiotics because you don't have to go to a doctor or a pharmacy to get them. You can just buy them over the counter. But in the first world and in the developing world, I'm guessing that these antibiotics that are making their way into the water are making their way into the water because they were originally fed to animals. We use antibiotics routinely in what's referred to euphemistically as animal intensive agriculture. I would call it animal holocaust, animal concentration camps. You know, where you have millions of animals, they can't move, they're living in their own waste, miserable lives, children are taken away at birth, the mothers mourn for days and days and days. And on top of all that, we're literally on a daily basis feeding them antibiotics because it makes them fatten up faster and reduces the chance of their getting infections. It is just so wrong. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy, just quite simply, I mean, bottom line, does not function without a high level of citizen engagement. And we've got to, we have got to turn out in this election. If you're not registered to vote, get there and get out there and get active. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.